Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Long time no podcast, kind of, Courtney. It has been. I think that, again, we needed a little bit of a break. Yes. Not not necessarily from tennis and not necessarily from each other, but maybe it wasn't even a break. I think it was more we both needed to be reunited with lives. I think so. No, it was just like sort of hibernation or recoil period or something a little bit yeah because we're both doing we are now speaking to you of the week of madrid we are both soon getting on flights to rome from the u.s and so we'll get back on the treadmill or the hamster wheel or whatever you want to call it very soon so i think us uh savoring a little bit of our sanity for the moment it's probably self-preservational and at this point i we've been at on the tour you know rhythms for long enough I generally sort of trust our instincts on these things. If our body's saying, you know what, yeah, shut it down, you listen. It's a lot. Hey, you know, we learn just like the players learn. Mm-hmm. And Serena said she was exhausted after Charleston. She chilled out until Madrid. So we, you know, if it's okay for the number one, it's okay for me. Although Serena did go on HSN at some point in the middle there, which I did not personally. Well, no, you did not personally, but you were paying attention. Oh, of, of course, obviously. I'm we only, both I'm were paying human. attention yeah. and losing sleep. Yep. So she starts at midnight. It's 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 uh, command entertainment. It's true. This is very true. Yeah. No. So very good break. Good hibernation. I actually went on vacation. Did you do anything, Ben? Oh, you uh, did a lot of hockey stuff. I did do a lot of hockey stuff. Yeah, we both followed hockey. It was that was a nice diversion from tennis too as well. Each Not of us really. Diving into hockey. Well, we'll get to that. Both <laughs> of our teams. I'm a Flyers fan. You're a Sharks fan. Uh, lost first round, and I'm <sighs> kind of relieved. Relieved this uh, week. The second round's going on. I was like, wow, I'm much less stressed now that my team flopped. And I don't have to worry about them anymore. Because it would have been an investment having to follow them from Rome and shit. So, yeah. But, yeah, Courtney, the Sharks, um, your team. Let's not. Okay, we won't. Let's not. It's we too won't. soon. Too soon. It's too soon to discuss blowing a 3-0 lead and losing in Game 7 to the LA Kings in completely embarrassing fashion. And once again, choking in the playoffs. Always make the playoffs. Never get very far in them. That is the Bay Area motto. It is awesome. So what? I cannot question, with the you, question San Jose. is: What tennis player is the San Jose Sharks? Ugh! What player routinely makes quarterfinals and semifinals and is talented enough to win tour- to win majors and never gets it done? Yeah. Hmm. Well, two years ago, I would have said Andy Murray. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's very Murray. It's very Murray. So they just need their Lendl. And it's actually true. We do need our Lendl. But you do have... There was some question, questionable decision-making down the stretch, but whatever. And Lendl's for hire now. You also, you have someone else we wanted to talk about on the Sharks front, another Czech person. Mm. Tell me about your favorite shark. I assume he's your favorite. He has to be, right? No, my favorite shark is Patty Marlowe, but okay. um, that's, you know, because of he's Patrick Marlowe. He's our guy. But uh, no, we have a 20-year-old Czech named Tomáš Hertel. If you are not aware of Tomáš Hertel... That makes me sad, and it would probably make him sad too. I guess. But so. he is the most—he is basically the most adorable professional athlete in the world. I think that's fair. I think it's totally fair. And it's, and it's an upset having an NHLer win that title. 
it's a huge upset. So what what makes him adorable? Because I'm assuming most people listening to this probably have not heard of him. Okay, so first what you need to know about Thomas Hurtle is he's a very talented hockey player, and yeah. he kind of made a big name for himself, what was it, le- last season? No, it was in the fall, this fall. Yeah, it was the fall of this season, yeah, when he basically made, like, the goal of the year uh, between the legs. Which was like, his fourth goal of that game. Fourth goal of that game. His mom and his girlfriend were in the crowd. It was very cute and adorable. And he gave this interview afterwards in like broken English. So broken. So, so broken. But it was just so, he's just, he looks like a little boy. And he was just like, you know, yeah, like his dream, no reality. He was just like so kind of overwhelmed by everything. But his most famous thing is that he sent this tweet out. Like, this wasn't the Dave and Buster's tweet. This was with the old people, I guess. Yeah, he because he, he yeah. got injured and he was doing rehab with some like senior citizens, uh, water aerobics <laughs> class or something in the South Bay in in San Jose, and he's and he sent out this tweet. It was like, "Hey, I made some new friends today," and it was like him in the pool with all these old people, <laughs> and like that. And then it said like, "Fun must be always." Fun must be always. Fun must be always with like a happy face. So that became like a sharks rallying cry, and like the sharks smartly like sold T-shirts that said "Fun must be always" on them, and Hertel thought it was really funny. And then his teammate introduced him to Dave and Buster's. Dave and Buster's is basically an adult arcade. So right. like you go and you can eat and you can drink, but you can play all the stupid like arcade games that like are awesome, like yeah. skee ball, mm-hmm. you know, that claw thing, shooting baskets, yep. uh, whatever. It's really fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Hurtle absolutely it blew his mind and his It blew roommate, his mind that you could get like tickets and get prizes. That's especially right. what blew his mind. Exactly. So his roommate came home one day and Hertel had gone back without him to Dave and Buster's and his roommate said tweeted a picture of Hertel's like bed or couch and there were like there was like a despicable me minion and like two other stuffed animals that were super random. Um, Which just showed a lot of time spent doing this too because you don't get yes. the big animals without spending a lot of time there. Yeah, so it was great. It's pretty great. So that's Thomas Hertel. And we call him Teenage Mutant Ninja Hurdle. Yeah, he's just, he's lovely. He's so, just fun. So which tennis player do you think comes closest to Hurdleness? Uh, my answer for this, when we were thinking about it, is Vicky Duval. Oh, in terms of adorability. Yeah. Or On just, a pure adorability metric, yes. Yeah, and just sort of childlike wonder about yeah. the world. It's probably exactly. my answer. Yeah. Yeah. But I would or, be very or... happy to have someone else. Anybody else come to mind? You know what? I mean, I think there's an argument to be made about Dimitrov. Interesting. Really? Like kind of well, I mean, if Dimitrov were more like dorky and like childlike and not like a guy who's dating Maria Sharpova. <laughs> I think you're describing but, someone totally different than who he is. But, okay. but no, like kind of like you know, the skill, the showmanship, like as a player, kind of combined with like kind of crowd favoriteness, and then like, you know, like Dimitrov sending that tweet last week that clearly shows he doesn't know what a hashtag is. Yeah. Um, you know, just little kind of like false notes. That, you know, you make you want to just pat him on the head. Maybe. That could be right. And I could totally see Dimitrov saying fun must be always. As good as his English is, sometimes he gets all jumbled up. (laughs) That's fair. I could see it happening. That's fair. So on this show, we won't talk about Dimitrov much more, even though he did win Bucharest. So congratulations to him. It's the closest thing he has to a home tournament. Fun must be always for Bulgarians and Romania, I guess. Um, But we will talk about the start of the clay season including things like Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Stuttgart, uh, and the big players of those tournaments, the Nadals, the Djokovic, Wawrinka, Sharapova, 
And uh, then we will finish off with a interview we did at Indian Wells with Alize Cornet, which we've been holding for a while and wanted to get to you guys finally. Yeah, she was a lot of fun, and we think you will enjoy her. So ready to get our dirt ball rolling, Courtney? Roll up. Uh, we did want to start first on this episode by acknowledging and remembering Elena Baltacha, who passed away Sunday of recording this one day ago due to liver cancer, which she been she announced that she had uh, just a couple months ago after having dealt with other liver issues early in her career, and she had just retired at the end of uh, 2013. So, Courtney, I think this news, even though it wasn't obviously out of completely left field, still caught a lot of people off guard, and uh, she got a lot of great remembrances and kind words uh, from all over the tennis world today, uh, ATP, WTA, British, non-British, everybody pretty much had nothing but nice things to say about her. So we thought we'd just share briefly some of our memories of Elena Baltacha or Bally, as she was much more commonly known. Bally. Yeah, I mean, definitely it was, um, the news was a total shock to me simply because she was 30 years old and, you know, you don't expect someone that young to, to be that seriously affected by, by cancer at that age and yeah. let alone to be, to be taken from us. And, uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's tragic on no matter how you kind of look at the story, you know, I mean, she's newly retired, newly married, and then, and then diagnosed with the liver cancer in mid January, I believe. Um, and, uh, obviously the British tennis community had kind of rallied around her and scheduled these rally for Bally, uh, exhibitions, um, this summer during the, the British uh, yeah. grass season. But, uh, you know, I mean, my memories of Bally, I mean, I, I never really just talked to her one-on-one ever. Um, I never really got to know her per se, like myself, but having watched her matches and been in press conferences uh, that she had given, I think that the, the the word that keeps coming up when people kind of talk about Elena Baltasha is just what a fighter she was. And that is definitely true. You know, I mean, she definitely kind of punched above her kind of pure talent class, I think. I totally. mean, just by pure competitive ability, you know, got herself into the top 50 and was number one Brit for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a blip. Like, no. you know, some people we kind of <laughs> laugh at, you know, the whole concept of the number one Brit because you're like, well, like everybody gets number one Brit at some point. It doesn't really uh, signal what your ranking was or anything like that. But Baltasha was kind of the stalwart. Um, she was the best three years for quite a while. Yeah, for three years from 2009 to 2012. I think she held the, the ranking for over or the number one Brit ranking for over like 130 weeks. I mean, that's, you know, that's a long time. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, those are, uh, you know, those are kind of my initial thoughts. What about you, Ben? Same with you. Definitely remember what a fighter she was. I remember watching, I think the tournament that I watched that really sort of tripped me up, upgraded my tennis fandom to somewhere more near certifiable was Wimbledon 2004. I think I watched like almost every hour of coverage on ESPN2, or maybe it was ESPN back then. Either way. Of the tournament, and I remember this match that Baltacha played against Jennifer Capriotti in the, I want to say the second round, and it was like six four six four. But Capriotti obviously was a top five or top ten player at that point, and I'd never heard of Baltacha. And Baltacha was fighting so hard; she had her glasses on. I mean, she just had, she had this, you know, like like the Kate McKinnon Billie Jean King sketch. You know, when you're out there fighting like tooth and nail, and be like really gritty and battling and sweating and you know grunting and whatever else smacking the ball as hard as you can and you're doing it wearing glasses like that's a whole nother level of respect in terms of the amount of like no we're just gonna do this like you know 
I like that. Respect. Yeah. respect. So that was that's my main memory. I remember seeing. I didn't hear about much from her for quite a while after that because, like you said, she got British number one in '09 or something. That was five years later. In the intermediate time, she was one of the players at the 50k Challenger in DC that I went to once. And I got really excited to see her again, and she, I want to say, wasn't wearing the glasses, and I was disappointed. <laughs> And then, yeah, just sort of seeing her get closer to top 50 was impressive. And like you said, she was somebody who definitely overachieved given her basic amount of talent, which was not astronomical, honestly. I mean, she was a very, very hard worker and a very good competitor that really pushed her through much further than just raw talent would have. And that's going against a lot of the knocks that some of the other British players from the LTA establishment have. I mean, someone who has all the work and not much of the talent has not been the problem for them. And that's a... People, when people sort of make their career as a tennis player with those being the circumstances, I think they're very easy to respect. And yeah, her passing away at this age obviously is pretty, pretty stunning for people, especially I think coming on the heels of uh, both Klebanova and Hutchins having made successful comebacks to tour from their illnesses. I think people, I don't want to say shrugged it off, but people thought, oh, you know, this is another tennis player getting cancer, but it'll be fine because you know tennis players have beaten it before and they're fighters, but it doesn't always doesn't always work that way at all, and it's not a, always about you know fighting. A lot of times, it's totally out of your control, and so it's definitely definitely a sad circumstance for her. Yeah, I mean, I I mean the only the, the two kind of Bali memories that I have was one um, at the beginning of 2011 when I kind of began my like I'm just going to travel the world and go to as many tennis tournaments as I possibly can, and I was at the Australian Open. And there was a first round qualifying, or not, sorry, first round match um, on an outer court between Baltasha and a, at then to me, unknown Jamie Hampton, who had qualified um, to get into the tournament. And that was like the first match I'd ever seen uh, Jamie play and probably the first live match I'd ever seen Baltasha play. And it was a night match and it was intense. It like was just another one of those, like, this is just pure battle and, um, Hampton was like exhausted obviously from her qualifying effort um and but I what I remember about from Baltasha's side was that she had the entirety of kind of like the team GB you know Judy Murray uh you know all the LTA folks trainers anyone yeah. fellow players anyone that was like around and didn't had, had didn't need to play or whatever everybody's in the bleachers just like screaming and hooting and hollering and I remember just seeing that and being like wow you don't really see that um, you know, from a lot of other kind of uh, players, uh, you know, that they're kind of federation and, and country women or country men support yeah. um, that regularly. And I think that it was really it, it does show even now, um, you know, I mean, obviously this news was announced uh, last night, um, probably around like, I mean, really late British time. Yeah. And even as of now, there haven't been, you know, tweets from. Judy Murray about it, Andy Murray. I think that, you know, it took a while until Anne Kiantavong sent something out, um, Laura Robson as well, Heather Watson. Um, and I think a lot of that does kind of have to do with the fact that the the, the Brits are really, really tight. No, I, and, definitely. You know, it, it, this is something that is rocking them in, in a very personal way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and just remembering kind of those scenes, like you saw that and you felt that kind of energy and that closeness even then. Um, and then the other Bally memory that I have was, I can't remember which press conference it was, but I feel like it was at Wimbledon maybe two years ago. And it was when 
maybe uh and and Baltasha maybe had the the Brit number one ranking or didn't or she had fallen off. I can't remember the specific circumstances, but you know, obviously Heather Watson and Laura Robson were were coming up at the time and kind of overtaking her, getting close to overtaking mm-hmm. her. Yeah. And her kind of saying, like, you know, just and we're talking about like a ranking of in the eighties, like nineties, eighties, seventies, in terms of being number one Brit at the time. And Baltasha is kind of having this swagger of like, well, if they want the ranking, they're going to have to come get it because I'm not going to give it to them. <laughs> like that's kind of like not in a mean way, but in a very jockish way. Like, you know, like. She's a total jock. Know. Total jock. Yeah. And she was just such a jock and a gamer. And I just remember kind of listening to it and kind of laughing because thinking like <laughs> we're talking about like number 80 something. <laughs> like we're not talking about like top 20 or something like that. But, you know, that kind of swagger is what allowed her to compete and to fight and to battle um, as well as she did throughout her career. You know, so that's always kind of going to be kind of my very fond memory of Elena Baltasha. You mentioned the Murrays earlier, and I do think that they go way back. I think because Elena was Scottish. Scottish, Yeah, Yeah, so I remember there being that news article that came out or not came out, but like an old clipping was unearthed about like Andrew Murray talking about playing tennis when he was like six years old. And like you could see he wasn't entirely like, was kind of cut off on the scan or whatever. But the next paragraph was like, and then nine-year-old Elena Baltasha also is succeeding in her age group or something, too. And yeah. so they go way back. So it's definitely a, uh, a tough loss for them. And our thoughts are with uh, her family and uh, everyone who knew her and was friends with her. So back to the um, much less serious uh, topic of tennis results. What has been your biggest takeaway? I'll leave it open-ended for now, Courtney. Okay. Biggest takeaway so far from the red clay season? Biggest takeaway is that the ATP is more open than we've seen it for a long, long time. Yeah. That's the biggest thing because I think with the WTA, I mean, we haven't really had, other than Stuttgart, I mean, obviously Stuttgart was major, but it didn't feature the number one and number two players. And, and at the end of the day, Sharapova did what she always does, which is win Stuttgart. So there wasn't so much that we really learned, um, I think, from the women, other than the fact that, you know, maybe Anna Ivanovic is for real much better this year than she has been in the past. I think that's a legitimate argument. No, that's uh, argument definitely true. Make. And I think you could say that Sharapova also has sort of regained some footing. Yeah. You could say that was definitely a takeaway from Stuttgart. Not that... She is who th- we thought she was. Yeah. Because we have a lot of respect for her and her resiliency. But it was a confirmation that, yeah, she got a trophy under her belt. Clearly, it meant a lot to her. It was one of the most emotional reactions I've ever seen from her after a yeah. win. Um, so, yeah. She but, ne- she needed it. She did. You know, I think that that was one of those that if she didn't get it, then there would be a lot more swirling concern about, okay, what's wrong, you know? And um, and it's kind of the same. It was almost the, the same as, like, um, segueing into what I was saying before about the ATP like with Rafael Nadal not winning Barcelona like yeah. okay Rafa didn't win Monte Carlo he lost to Ferrer who doesn't suck on clay and it was the first clay event and you know he had lost in Monte Carlo before you know what I mean it, you know to, to Djokovic the year before and like okay you, and you Ferrer, sh- yeah for all the times he owned Ferrer he still lost him like five or six times before yeah okay. including in he Paris had, last year indoors so yeah, yeah it happens he had, a, he had a bad he had a bad day people can have bad days but so I felt like Rafa's Barcelona was kind of Sharapova's Stuttgart, except that he didn't win Barcelona. And that is why, because he didn't win Barcelona, the whispers and the questions and the wondering 
kind of is is swelling, yeah. you know, as we get into Madrid and um, and will continue to swell until he puts the hammer down and wins one of these tournaments. I mean, you know, but but Barcelona was really the one where I was like, I'm sorry, but did you just lose to Nicolas Belmagro after being, a first of all, a setup and then a breakup in the third? Like Rafael Nadal does not get outplayed by Nicolas Almagro from a, a breakup in the third. Not only ever. that, Almagro didn't even play well. No. That was the thing. That match was terrible by Horrible. both of them. And normally, okay, we've seen Rafa get in some matches where he wins ugly. He's not immune to doing that. I mean, obviously, the Verdasco match from Cincinnati will live in infamy forever. <laughs> um, I hate to even invoke it. Um, God. To upset, upset. It's I feel like, like I'm, this you know. very bitter, sour taste in the back of my mouth. Oh, no, that's, bi- that's bile. That's yeah, bile. That's pretty much what it was. Yeah, no, but for Rafa to to come unglued like that and really just look totally low on confidence was what it shook out to be. I think some people have uh, hypothesized that the loss of Bavrinka in Australia is still rattling him, and I don't totally discount that either in terms of just it being a match that really unsettled him and nothing about winning Rio or whatever was going to change that. See, to me, it was, it was, it was Miami. I think Uh, that final, I don't think that the Vavrinka final, yeah, it has repercussions because it was an opportunity lost, obviously. But I think that if you're Nadal, you think that's bad luck though. I mean, I was partially injured and Stan played really well, et cetera, et cetera. To me, to get absolutely taken to the woodshed, for, and you had no excuses, none. none. They both got walkovers into the final. They were both well-rested in Miami. Conditions were fine to get absolutely... Pasted, yeah. Yeah, like that badly. I think that is the loss that's really kind of questioned, made him question things. And then he's just not, he's not playing well on the clay. The ball's landing so short. They're just some, some kind of technical or, or maybe the, maybe he says that's a confidence issue that when he's confident, he's hitting deeper but it seems kind of a catch-22. Figure yeah. that if you're hitting deeper, you're probably winning, and then yeah, <laughs> running Rafa, confidence. Rafa before has talked about equating aggressiveness with confidence on the court, and very openly he says, you know, when I... doesn't say it as explicitly as this, because um, he's not usually the most direct person when not analyzing his own game, but basically it comes down to when he's not feeling confident, he gets way more defensive and pushier. He doesn't say that, obviously, but, you know, less attacking. When he is feeling confident, then he's going out and playing, you know... U.S. Open 2010 style Rafa tennis and just not ball bashing, but totally dictating everything. Right. And here he's le- he was letting Almagro and letting Ferrer just dictate everything, and it was really bizarrely passive and unsettling. And obviously, I mean, Rafa doesn't. It's just bad for just personally his thing. I mean, Rafa doesn't need to keep winning every clay tournament for the rest of the time. I think it's probably good that there's some uncertainty about. Rafa's clay status for once just from an entertainment or intrigue point of view um, but yeah this is not him at his best or even close so far and right. if he doesn't win Rome or Madrid I think it only takes one if he doesn't win either of them then yeah there's some definite alarms to go off in Paris for some possible upset alert yeah and so much of it has to do not just with like you know with Nadal's belief or even you know talking about Djokovic and his his right arm injury and, and that uh, impacting his clay season, uh, it's not necessarily about their belief. I mean, obviously playing and winning will build that, but also so long as these doubts linger, it kind of bolsters this you know amorphous non tangible belief in the locker room concept. Yeah, that these guys are beatable. I still think that taking three sets from them on clay at the French Open is a completely different uh, beast, and that's why I don't. 
for me personally, I haven't really hit the panic button with respect to either of them. I think I would wait until after Rome. Um, I really don't even think Madrid is is that big of a deal if Rafa doesn't win Madrid because the conditions are just so different than they are in Paris. I think Rome is really going to be a big indicator tournament. Yeah, you, you definitely tune in to the earlier rounds a lot, uh, a lot more than before for the ATP. That's for sure. No, I and mean, definitely look at the draw. I mean, if he gets the wrong. If Nadal, we're talking about for now, gets the wrong uh, 25 to 32 seed, I mean, you'd even be looking at that soon in the draw. If you get somebody, like, I don't know who's in that range, like a Doga Poloff, even though it's not the best clay quarter. I mean, somebody, you know what I mean, in that sort of potential yeah. dangerous floater range. And you don't automatically pen him into the final, or even the championship slot for that matter, because he was so never in doubt for so long in Paris. Djokovic is a totally different situation for him, because his confidence and everything seemed totally fine. He won both Indy Wells and Miami, and then in Monte Carlo came down with some, or flared up with some right wrist injury pain that had his arm heavily strapped, and he lost to Federer, and then downplayed it mostly, but then got some more tests and analysis and pulled out of Madrid, and is uncertain for Rome, optimistic but uncertain. We obviously don't know what the tests or anything are, how he's feeling, Courtney, but how in any way could it be more concerning for Djokovic than Nadal at this point? Well, I think injury is always going to be more concerning than doubts or right. dubits or whatever. Dubits. Dubits. So, yeah, I mean, obviously that, that that's going to be a problem, especially on heavy red clay. And, you know, and, and but I do kind of feel like Novak is a player that I feel like can go into the French Open cold and still win it. Like, I don't necessarily think that, like, he needs the lead-ups as much as Rafa, oddly. I feel like like Novak has the confidence and has a, has the type of game that he could play his way into that tournament um, pretty well. So hopefully, that's why I thought it was a really good idea for him to skip Madrid. I didn't think that he should be playing it in the first place. Um, so that was a good that was a good move. He needs to be healthy though. There's just so much on the line over the course of the next you know two months. Um, it makes no sense. Like, who cares if you win Madrid and take over the number one ranking for a week? You know, like, just skip it and play for the big titles, which is what he needs to do. So um, so I think that's good. I mean, I think it should be noted that the, the, the arm injury occurred before Monte Carlo. It just that it flared up in terms of the pain um, after that long match with the uh, Garcia Lopez. Yeah. So, I mean, there's more worry just because if he's not 100 percent, I don't think he can win the French. But at the same time, I think that he will be 100% because I think that if there's any doubt, he'll he'll skip Rome and, you know, you roll the dice and you just try to play your way into the tournament. And the way that, you know, the ATP is, he'll have those those two to three matches to play himself into into Paris. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I think that if Djokovic was playing, like, if they both enter Rome and let's say Nadal loses early again in Madrid, I would like Djokovic's chances more. But I do think that Nadal can sort of flip the switch and suddenly refine his confidence pretty quickly. And can even by a second week of the French, assuming he makes it there, and obviously I still think he's going to make the second week of the French Open pretty easily because he's Rafael Nadal, and he wins matches before they start, no matter how low his confidence is. Nadal, I think, can sort of flip a switch and get there. Djokovic has more of a cloud over him at this point, especially with Del Potro, you know, having tints the view of it, wrist injuries for me now anyway, has serious it been for him. And I know that that's probably fresh in Djokovic's mind as well. Um, doesn't want to have this become a chronic debilitating thing. Because Djokovic really has had pretty good injury, injury luck in his career so far, all things considered. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think the the weird thing is that I, it's unclear to me. I don't know if it's clear to you, Ben, but it's unclear to me whether or not this is a wrist injury or an arm injury, because in Monte Carlo, it was referred he referred to it as a wrist injury. Yeah. But then, like the cited reason and what he said in his statement uh, regarding his withdrawal from Madrid is that it's an arm injury. So it's kind of like is I don't know the extent yeah. of the injury is just kind of shrouded, That's you know, true. because yeah, if it's wrist. I'm way more concerned than if it's arm. I was saying wrist because he was saying wrist. Yeah. No, he said wrist. No, he was saying wrist yeah. and then now he's saying arm. So, you know, and it looked like he was like pretty much about to get come and play Madrid. And then, you know, it flared back up again. And I don't know if that was the previous injury or an overcompensation injury or a new injury, whatever. But may I just say, speaking of us hockey briefly, I'm so glad that we don't work in a sport mostly that does upper body injury bullshit. Like, oh, this person has an upper body injury or a lower body injury. And that's all you get. Really? Yeah. You didn't know that about hockey? That's I didn't know that about hockey. All they tell you is upper body or lower body. And so, like, the Flyers goalie before the playoffs had an upper body injury. He was out. People thought it was a concussion. There's also some speculation might be his shoulder, which are very different injuries. Let's be very clear. <laughs> yeah. And then after the playoffs, they're like, oh, yeah, I had a concussion. You're like, oh, thanks. Okay. Your goalie was concussed? Yeah, he missed the first three games and came back. Despite symptoms, he's a trooper. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, hockey. Yeah, but it's just upper body injury. Anyway, I'm very glad that we get pretty good disclosure from players. Not all the time. Obviously, a lot of them play hurt, never say anything. But when they do get hurt, usually they do give some details. If they withdraw, they have to give something specific. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing that makes it that. But I think that a big reason for that is kind of the difference as a sport structurally of tennis and hockey, right? Hockey, if a guy sits out, who gives a shit? Because the team still takes the field or the court or the ice. You still sell the tickets to, for that team. You're always going to get a, a game that day, you know, that has been advertised for months in advance. Da, 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 da. Whereas like in tennis, if somebody pulls out, that match doesn't happen. Like you better freaking like bring a note yeah. and explain to the organizers, the, receipts, the people who are, yeah. yeah, who are paying for your, you know, your your hotel or, like, whatever, that you legit cannot take the court today. <laughs> so I was watching the ATP stream on TV of Madrid today, mm-hmm. and for but they're not showing WTA on Tennis Channel for some reason, which I don't entirely understand, but they were doing some long montage of the highlights of the Master Series year and Master Series so far, so there's all this great India Wells stuff, and this great Miami stuff, and then it suddenly kind of gets quiet, and they flip to these two Nishikori and Burditch press conferences back-to-back for the <laughs> only thing that happened that day when they both pulled out, and it reminded me of how ridiculous that was, and that was you bring it up, day. yeah, so, yep. anyway, totally. ho- hopefully everybody stays healthy and gets healthier through the clay, um, there's a long way to go, and this is a rough part of the schedule, for sure. The clay, it is. The and clay it, grass it, swing. Yeah, and, and especially, like, with, I mean, speaking just of the clay season, it's just, I don't know about you, Ben, but I find it very difficult to really talk extensively about, like, previewing the clay season or, like, whatever right now because there's just so many question marks. Yeah. You know, like, how do you even, you know, okay, you have Rafa Novak on that side, then you have, like, you know, Serena and Lee Na, and they're just, there's not enough data. There's not enough clay data at the moment. Well, no more after Rome. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and even like you said, Madrid is kind of weird, uh, conditions-wise, weird clay, altitude, Federer's won it a bunch. I mean, it's not a normal yeah. clay tournament, so. It's not a normal clay tournament yeah. at all. We'll... I mean, Petra won. <laughs> I mean, Aravain <laughs> Rezai won Madrid. <laughs> Let's be clear. Oh, God. <laughs> I think there was something like, the Madrid winner more often wins Wimbledon than yeah. the French. I'm pretty sure that's a stat. Yep. Anyway. 
Moving on. You mentioned that Monte Carlo, Nadal lost, and Djokovic lost. I'm not sure you mentioned yet that Stan Wawrinka won it. Stan <laughs> Wawrinka, being the three seed, won an all-Swiss final against Roger Federer. Uh, Federer had a pretty good chance to win in straights, but then lost in three. Got kind of killed in the third set, really went away. And Stan won his second big title of the year. After his first slam comes the first Masters. And that's pretty impressive because uh, a lot of people, uh, I mean, like, for example, Del Potro never won a Masters after his slam. Uh, Murray, Murray won, I think, only one Masters after his slams. So following up those big results doesn't always happen. And so for him, what do you think this says about Stan Wawrinka and his legitimacy as a French Open contender to try to become the first guy to do the Australia-French double since Jim Courier, which is a ridiculous stat. That's that's such. It's just crazy that it could be Stan, and that yeah. the, and that it's not crazy to think that he could do it. Yeah, his season has just been weirdly for a guy who yeah has like a slam and a masters under his belt and you know is pretty much and Chennai and Chennai and Chennai and playing like incredible tennis that that yeah I still find myself overlooking him and I don't think that that's really I don't mean that as a slight to Stan I think that it's just habit like you know when you go into a tournament we've spent four or five years just going straight to where's Rafa where's Roger where's Novak where's Andy and now, and then, you know, and then you're like, okay, where's Burdick? Where's Sanga? Where's Del Potro? You know, like, this is kind of the analysis process that you go through. And so it just takes a little time to kind of teach the machine to look for Stan. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, so that's how at least I feel about it. But I think that, I mean, how can you say that, like, he's not for real if he's beaten Novak in best of five on a hard court, right? He's beaten Rafa, okay, a, a, a hobbled Rafa, but... You can't take that win away from Stan at all, especially that first set. Taking that first set was so key. So he's beaten Stan. He's beaten Roger in a final. Yeah. Coming back from a set down. That was a tournament that Roger wanted, too, because that's the only chance Roger's going to get to win Monte Carlo. Exactly. So that was pretty major. He's, I mean, he's winning. He's like, I don't think he's lost to a top 10 player this year. Um, That's correct. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, how can you not bet against him so long as he's healthy going into the French? I think you double negative there. We didn't mean to. Oh, I didn't mean to. Oh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. How, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I definitely, he's one of the favorites. Oh, for sure. I don't, I don't think that uh, there's anyone. Is, is he? Would he be a favorite for you ahead of Roger for Paris? Uh, oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, he has to be. I mean, Roger, um, we got a question about Roger, actually, to throw it to listener question. And we'll try to do an all-question episode, uh, maybe when we're in Rome together or something, because we do have a bunch. We want to get more from you guys. Um, we got one from our dedicated listener, Shola, who asks us, uh, is it encouraging for Federer to have made four finals this year, or discouraging to have lost three of them? Which I think it's a good question. Um, Federer? What are your thoughts, Ben? I think this year has to be considered only encouraging for Federer so much better than last year. I mean, last year, let's remember, he lost his last two slams to Sikovsky and Robredo. <laughs> when when Tommy Robredo beats Federer in straights on Armstrong, I think the earth gets knocked a little bit off its axis, axis. And you got so many like sad think pieces about it. And there has not been one single sad Federer think piece this year. And I think that's a positive sign for Roger. It is. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that it's definitely positive. He's putting himself in those positions to win. 
Um, and yeah, okay, he's not, you know, he's not necessarily closing them out. He really should have closed out Stan. Um, yeah. Shouldn't, I mean, played just a bad tiebreaker, really. And it was really just one point that swung that second set tiebreaker, and then he just went away in the third. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, if you think that he, that Federer's standard or what should be expected of him is like to win majors and to win ridiculously big titles all the time. In other words, if you still think it's like 2006, then yeah, I guess the three losses are really disappointing, right? Cause it's showing that, yeah, he's not, uh, he's fallible. He's, he's giving away some leads. He's not necessarily closing out matches as well as he should, et cetera, et cetera. But like if, yeah, if you're using last year as a baseline, crap i mean the, the fact that he's just winning matches against quality opponents is pretty good let alone making finals so i think that it's all positive i think that he's putting himself in the position and really he very easily could have won monte carlo and he very easily could have won indian wells indian wells was a was a third set tie break yeah that's all it was you know so you know the, the surprising one was the loss in brisbane um to hewitt but yeah that was weird yeah otherwise you know, he very easily could have won those two. So it's just points here and there. And that's as all the players will tell you when they run out of things to say and they're too lazy to actually explain an answer. That's tennis. BT dubs. Brisbane feels like so long ago. It does. <laughs> anyway, uh, off off of Stan mentioning Courier, that's that. Another question to sort of zoom it out a little bit. Who is more likely to win the Australian French double, Stan? Or Lina. Lina would be the first one to do it since 2001 Capriati. It's we- it's really strange that it hasn't happened more, considering, especially men's side, especially, um, how few winners there have been. Um, but that's just is what happens when Rafa wins the French almost all the time. And it's only well, won yeah. the Australian once and happened to be the one year he didn't win the French. So. Right. And on the women's side, too, I mean, yeah, you have people who... Serena won five, yeah. Yeah, Serena, even thinking, I mean... Hennen really should have probably been able to win the Aussie a few more times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is confusing. Um, it's a really good question. Uh, I will say if no, it doesn't matter. I will tip Vavrinka before I tip Lena. Okay, I'm gonna take, barely. Yeah, I'm gonna take Lena barely. Okay, explain your barely, and then I'll explain my barely. I still think that Rafa goes into the French as a favorite, no matter what his buildup is. Um, and I think Djokovic is ahead of Vavrinka as well, if he goes in and plays it all. Um, Vavrinka hasn't... He's only made one slam finalist member, and I think only one additional slam semi. So him making consistent deep runs at slams... But is those not are the last two slams. I realize, yeah. <laughs> So that is so true. There but there's is also some, some consistency. So you have to measure consistency versus recency bias and stuff. Anyway, Lena will have a, a half of the draw to herself without Serena, and so I'm not sure who goes into a match against her on her half, except for maybe a streaking Sharapova as someone who can be a legit contender to knock her out. Um, obviously, she can always beat herself, but she hasn't done that that much this year. And I think uh, the slams, her focus will be much better especially with Carlos. We haven't seen any real, real bad slam losses from her during their partnership. So I would pick Lena just because uh, she wanted to play Serena. Uh, Stan would have to to theoretically play Nadal and Djokovic possibly, and there's only one Serena. So that's my my rationale. 
my rationale is that Lena actually sucks on clay. That's, Everybody points that's points fair. to the fact that she won, and it was an incredible run. You can't take that 2011 so good. French. So good. So good. She beat every freaking buddy. Everybody. Minus Serena. She beat Vika. Yeah. She beat, yeah, she beats Vika. She beat Schiavone. She beats, uh, when Schiavone was good. Um, she beat Sharapova. She beat Petra. She beat uh, Petra. I mean, she beat everybody that year. So amazing. But that was, to me, a lightning in the bottle run um, on clay. Since then, I mean, she doesn't, she hasn't really done anything on clay. She made like that one Rome final, that super wet Rome final uh, against Sharapova uh, that one year. But um, yeah, it's, it's not been great. Um, Last season, I think, I mean, undoubtedly her worst results came entirely on the clay. Um, that was the, it was like this, I just remember it being yeah. like just an annoying glitch in her stats because she had, was so good. I think she made set quarters or better at every tournament. So long as it was not on clay yeah, last year. Right. So yeah, so she didn't get past a quarterfinal last year. So I'm using probably more recency bias against that. That said, I think that she's, she's rested. She took about a month off. Um, which is good, um, which she spent a week in Munich getting her knee checked out and didn't touch a racket after Miami and then the rest of the time in uh, in Beijing training with Carlos. So, you know, I, I just think it's a barely thing. And it's more, it's not really um, that I'm picking Vavrinka to win because, as you said, like Rafa, Novak, and I just do think that, that best of three, those guys on clay, it's just a different... Specify, different yeah. question you know yeah um but uh i don't trust lena against herself on clay that's very fair i mean so, yeah last year the french she lost to bethany maddock in the second round yeah. um bethany was having a pretty solid little run yeah there. it wasn't a bad loss but it especially she took it I mean, bad but yeah she took it bad yeah but bethany had better clay results going into that tournament than lena did you were you were saying something courtney about lena wanting to learn how to play on clay Mm-hmm. What was this? So in one of her like little sit down interviews with the WTA before the tournament, I, which I watched this weekend, um, she said that her goal, she wanted to become a real clay court player that she wanted to. She's, you know, when she won in 2011, she was just really, really aggressive. And that's how she won. And, you know, just kind of played her regular hard court grass court game on clay. But with clay, because the ball slows down a little bit, you can actually work more points and work angles and spins. And she wants to learn to do that. And that is so frightening to hear <laughs> because she hasn't even mastered the other part, way to play tennis yet. It's not like she's graduating a grade. Like you're still held back in the fifth, dude. Like you still hit 60 unforced errors and win tennis matches. Like let's ha- try to like not hit 60 unforced errors. Like let's have that be the goal. It's kind of like having her say like, I want to learn Spanish suddenly and be like, let's just work on the English for now. Yeah. No, it makes no sense. Makes no sense. But and then the other thing, too, is kind of like, but you won playing the other way. It's not like you get style points. It's not like you like if you win playing this way, we're like, ooh, it's just no, you just have to win. Totally agree. So but that said, I mean, I appreciate kind of like her. it, It continues the trend with her of like wanting to embrace new challenges, wanting to at this point in her career become the best tennis player she can be. And that seems really, it seems to me that she's bought into that system so much with Carlos that she really, it's okay if she doesn't win titles. Like she wants to see if she can do it. Like the challenge is not in the winning, but in the like playing. The growth. 
yeah, the growth. And I'm now, I want to serve in volley and now I want to get to the net and now I want to do, you know, it's like, I appreciate that. I like that. That's like a very human way to challenge yourself. Totally. In a very sane way, because then you don't connect it to results necessarily. You know? Yeah. Lena. Where like if you lose, you're like, oh, I'm so devastated. But she really is pretty good about being like, oh, I lost, but I played the right way. I'm like, okay. Who thought that Lena was going to come out as the sane one? That's, I don't even. That's an upset. This world is weird. <laughs> Some fresh meat has been winning WTA tournaments lately, and not the new blood we expected, it's fair to say. Uh, since we last talked to you, Donna Vekic won Kuala Lumpur, uh, Caroline Garcia won Bogota, and then played really well in a U.S.-France uh, Fed Cup relegation match that France won. Uh, Carla Suarez Navarro finally won her first WTA title beating Svetlana Kuznetsova in a woeful final <laughs> in Portugal. It's one of the worst matches I've ever seen. Uh, thanks, Sveta. And both, they were both terrible. But Carla had... It was one of those matches where, you know, you say, it's a shame there has to be a winner. Because they really... <laughs> bo- I mean, you normally it's like, oh, it's a shame someone has to lose. This one was... There has to be a balance, you know? If it's a shame there has to be a loser in some matches, you have to balance it out on the other side. This was, this was bad. Anyway, and the final newbie winner was Tita Toro who you probably first heard of if you're a diehard listener of this show, when she came up on Take a Number, uh, Tia Toro winning her first title in Marrakesh. Um, Courtney, what do you think it says about these players, and not so much Carla, obviously, because she's a known quantity who made three slam quarters. What is it about these players breaking through before the players we expect? Like, we're still waiting for a first title from more hyped, in North America anyway, players like Sloane Stevens, like Jeannie Bouchard, Madison Keys. What does it say that these are the ones who are getting there first? Well, I think that first I would probably not include Madison Keys in that. I don't expect Madison to win a title for like another like year or two. Okay, but she's, ahead, but she's ahead of most of the people on the rankings anyway. Yeah, but in terms of like results wise, like she's ahead of those players, but like that have won. But I'm, yeah, I'm not, anyways, I'm not I, saying I'm I not wouldn't, saying all the I wouldn't lump her it. in with like the Sloan Genie thing because I think that's a different okay, beast. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the biggest thing about the first-time winners this year is that, you know, the best thing is that Tita Toro maybe not as much because she is kind of a bit more of an unknown. But with, like, a Caroline Garcia and a Donna Vekic and, you know, some of the other, you know, uh, first-time winners, uh, there are people who, like, we have been kind of had our eye on or hyping and maybe they didn't have like the semi-final results at a slam the way that like a Stevens or a Bouchard had or, or peeled off like big mega wins that you know uh plastered their name on the headlines but you know I mean it's I always say it's really nice when you see a player kind of show everybody why everybody talks about them whether or not that's a, a title run in a week or just a singular match where you're like yep that that is exactly why we think that you're going to be a thing one day. Yeah. Um, and you may toil away outside of that, but in that two hours you showed that it's not a, you're not a punchline. You're not a joke. And I feel like with, with Garcia, that was definitely something. I totally that, agree. I was going to say the exact same thing. Garcia yeah. totally had started to become a bit of a punchline. She was not rising as fast as people thought she would. Um, she's much older than like a Vekic, obviously. She made her breakthrough sort of run, um, not run, but match at the French Open three years ago. I want to say when she yep. was up a set in a break on Sharapova and 
completely fell apart like a Jenga tower. Andy Murray said afterwards she's going to be number one, and that sort of became a sarcastic thing for people. Like, oh, Andy Murray said she's going to be number one, but she just lost in qualities of Tashkent. To be fair, that's because Andy Murray was a punchline, and his punchline-ness kind of rubbed off on her. It's not I, yeah. her fault. <laughs> it, it was it was like a punchline multiplier. It was like yeah, this, exactly. like, exponential punchline-ness. Yeah, no, I totally... Until it snowballed on her. So for her to do it, I think is especially cool because her game is really nice and she's got a fun personality um, and a lot of stage presence and could be a good standard bearer for French tennis in the future. That is a Grand Slam nation who one hopes just for sort of stability of the game and the sort of old world sense of it that those countries remain relevant at big tournaments, especially their own tournaments. So Porto and Bogota on a clay court was, I think, pretty good. Um, also a quick shout out. For the other person, kind of not really yet in this category, who did well on clay this weekend, is Taylor Townsend, who, like a hoss, won four matches on Sunday to clinch the U.S. Uh, wildcard to the French Open and win the singles and doubles titles in Indian Harbor Beach, Florida. Her second straight ITF 50K. Yeah. She won her first one the week prior. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, a, a ridiculous effort from Taylor Townsend. And it, it, I think, took a lot of discipline for many people not to make the obvious joke about her fitness. Because, you know, going calling back to, to when the USTA kind of all that kerfuffle about um, not paying for her travel because they wanted her to get fitter. And at the time, she was a number one junior and da 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 and. Yeah, I mean, she went out there. She won two singles matches, two doubles matches in a one day. She tweeted today she was a little bit sore. So she is human. Yeah. It's good to know. But great effort from her. Saved two match points against Contavite in the semifinal. Which was the match um, she needed for the wild card. Yeah, exactly. Which is the one that she needed to get the, to, to get the wild card. And then absolutely rolled past Yulia Putinseva. It wasn't even close, 6-1, 6-1. I was um, like, I was title. being like, oh, I'm going to turn tune in for the third set of that one. And before I knew it, it was over. It was over. It was, I mean, it was not a great match from Putin Seva, but it was a great match from from Taylor. Um, just really, you know, hitting, hitting well through the ball. Um, I thought, um, and so that was pretty good. And then one one doubles with Alji Muhammad when the the schedule uh, backed everything up. I mean, it's just great. Again, it's a you're right, Ben. It's a it's another example of kind of like this is why we talk about you. Right. Like, you know, like this is why, you know, we pay attention to your results, even though you're you're 17, 18 years old and you're not, you know, competing on the pro ranks at all, you know, and stuff like that is because these these little glimpses, you're beating people who are more experienced than you, older than you, more physically developed, all these sorts of things. That's good stuff. If everybody maxes out in the current generation, um, I mean, like completely gets a plus 100 percent fulfillment, whatever. I think that Taylor Townsend is the best of all of them. I mean, like, I think the things she can do on the court at this age, um, and like we talked about with the still not totally developed athleticism that she might have in the future, um, yeah, she could be amazing. I mean, just watching her, I've always tried to watch her play whenever she's at a tournament. Um, her court sense and her uh, just mind out there is unbelievable. And look forward to hopefully seeing what she can do with the French and... Uh, hopefully get her ranking up and maybe on the grass at Wimbledon. She was great on that service in juniors. Uh, one to watch, and it's glad that she's coming up doing big things. I totally, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I will say that, like, if Taylor Townsend is playing doubles specifically, make sure you go watch her because when you see her at the net and what she does at the net and the volleys that she can hit at her age, um, that's what 
I know for me yeah. gets me excited. I mean, the serve, there are some technical problems. The forehand, there are some technical problems. But just watch her at the net. It's awesome. And yeah, I mean, she is the player that I get most excited about when I watch play. I don't know if it's all going to pan out, but it's game-changing talent. It's ga- in, in terms of like if, if all of that becomes – if that becomes like number one player and it, that inspires – generations of girls to play the way taylor townsend plays tennis like that is game changing it changes the landscape and moves everything away from kind of your your stereotypical ball bashers which most of the young kids are kind of clones of um or at the very least baseliners yeah 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 so uh yeah so we'll see we'll see and i mean even like pekovic and charleston last year remember she Mm -hmm. she crushed taylor i want to say like three in love or something but at the match was like she's so good She's so yeah. good. And so, yeah, so we see that. People see it and hope she can uh, pan out. Yep. So what, we mentioned Caroline Garcia as a possible future for French tennis, but the present of French women's tennis, um, even without Marion Bartoli, is wildly entertaining at the present um, because it belongs to Alizé Cornet. Corny, Corny, if someone had never watched Alizé Cornet, before and they were about to what would you tell them to expect from an Alice Cornet match? I would I would tell them first of all the key to watching an Alice Cornet match is never take your eyes off Alice Cornet. Oh completely. Like don't worry about the trajectory of the ball, don't worry about point construction, just keep your eye on her and make sure you do not miss Especially between points. anything. Yeah, exactly. Between points, during points, right after points, before points, changeovers all of it. It's amazing. But yeah, I mean, I think that the, what you what you would tell people to expect is a one-woman show. Yeah. That is fraught. Fra- it's basically a one-woman rendition of Les Miserables. It's it's like tennis as That's inter- what it is. It's in tennis as interpretive dance almost. Yeah. And with this sort of performance art quality to it and this sort of suffering and malaise but also a joie de vivre at the same time, to use a couple of French words in there. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, she brings this sort of theatricalness to women's tennis, which it used to have more of. And a lot of people have cleaned up in the whole social media, 24-hour news cycle, whatever, more TV coverage era. She's a bit of a throwback to like the amateur era, where there were like the really kind of nutso people out there. I don't mean that she's crazy. I just mean that she like does not bottle her motions at all on court and so she shares them with everybody and she brings enough for the class (laughs) she does she brings enough cupcakes to the yard yeah no she's she's great and uh i she's a player that like if i'm on off the clock and they're playing i will go grab my sandwich fill my water bottle with ice and water and march out to whatever outer court she's playing and just take in 20 minutes and it is as entertaining as an episode of 30 rock and and as absurd remember the cornet nicolescu match oh it was wonderful it was one of the best most entertaining matches i've ever seen in australia 2012 if it's on dvd anywhere go buy it um whatever bootleg copy you can find so we talked to her at indy wells and she was very chatty and very open and kind of like she is on court but just conversationally Exactly. And uh, one of the things that makes her so invaluable is that it, it's not actually unlike Marion. Maybe this is just a French thing. I don't know. But like she's willing to talk about whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, some players, you know, they're like, oh, I don't want to 
talk badly about another player or just like I don't want to talk about another player because I don't want anything to be misinterpreted or I just don't want to talk about another player because this is all about me and I'm not going to talk about another player. Right. Most players will fall into one of those three categories. And Cornet is just she just talks like a normal person, like doesn't isn't trying to like cover her ass in any way or like whatever but she's being honest and giving you her opinion so that was really really valuable i thought cool so we'll leave you with her and us uh, and signing off thanks again for listening we will see you on the other side of the atlantic next time uh, from rome for a madrid final preview episode so get excited for that and then we'll talk to you more from rome in the future and we'll see you guys later uh arrivederci courtney Arrivederci. Prego. Ciao. Spaghetti. Primavera. Primavera. <laughs> Roma. Carbonara. Carbonara. Literally all the all the all the all the all the Italian words I know yeah. are all food. So. Pretty much. Enjoy all the Cornet guys. She is not food, but she's fun. Au revoir. So we're here with Alize Cornet. Alize, thank you for joining us. Thanks. First of all, you're having quite a good year. Uh-huh. So far in tennis, how, how how are you feeling up there? Your tennis and your in your life right now. Great, great. Couldn't be better. I enjoy uh, so much being on the court right now, winning a lot of matches, and uh, yeah, I hope I'm gonna keep going like this the whole year because these two first months of the year were amazing for me. So the 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 work is uh, is paying out, and, uh, and it's good. Even like not just this year, but going back for the full 12 months. It's been quite a, a climb for you, kind of mm-hmm. back. I mean, how was it injuries, or what was it that kind of caused the, the a bit of a drop mm-hmm. in the last few years? Because you were a player that we were very excited about, yeah. you know, a few years ago, and then now you're kind of coming back. Yeah, don't don't talk to me. Uh, <laughs> don't talk about me uh, with the past. Uh, of course, past thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm still an exciting yes. player. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Trust me. No, yeah, that's true. I was uh, 11 in the world when I was uh, 19 years old, so I'm um, very young. And then I had a shoulder problem, and but I think I had a, a mental problem because um, I didn't have the motivation anymore to keep working uh, as hard as I did before. And slowly, I yeah, I dropped in the ranking, and finally I lost confidence in myself. And you know, it's like a vicious circle. Then you just don't know how to yeah. get back to the top level. And finally, um, it's been like two years now that I'm coming back. Uh, Slowly, the yeah. same way I dropped, but now I'm like 23. I'm I'm about to get in the top 20, at least I hope. And yeah. uh, I worked hard for this, and uh, I met the good people. So so I'm I'm happy the way it turned out, but that's it was not easy. Yeah. How did you rekindle that fire? How do you find motivation? Exactly. When you lose that's it. it. Yeah. I had to find the uh, find back the fire that was inside me, and I, I lost it a little bit when I was uh, when I was 19, 20. And finally, I just asked myself the good questions, like, what do you want to do with your life? Do you like tennis? And it's simple questions, but mm-hmm. finally, you never get the, the time to ask yourself these kind of things. And the answer was clear. I, w- I was made to play tennis, and I, I, I would just have to to find this, this fire inside of me and, uh, and let, it, let it out on the court. And now that's what I do on every matches. And I will never let it go anymore <laughs> because I know that it can it can be really tough then. Yes. Mm. What, what's it like being almost top ten when you're a teenager? I mean, that's a lot very quickly mm-hmm. for you. Do you think it was almost too much too soon? Were you not ready? Maybe. You don't know. I don't know if I was ready or not, but I was uh, I was playing great, and yeah. um, nobody can take it away <laughs> from me. I mean, that was my first part of of my career, and uh, it was a very good first part. Uh, I did things that um, not a lot of French players did before. 
So that's good. That's for yeah. me. But yeah, then I I couldn't hold it. I couldn't I couldn't keep working good. And um, you know, it's it's experience. I'm only 24 years old, so it's already a lot of experience behind yeah. me, and it's gonna help me for the future. So I don't know if if it was too early, but I did it. That's good. <laughs> now it's over. I have another another part of my career to do, and I think that's gonna be the best one. Does it feel different being French number one? Oh, it's good. Yeah, I've been I've been French number yeah. one in 2009 already. Uh, we were like almost the same with Marion Bartoli yeah. at the time. Now I'm back number one, uh, a little bit far in front of the others because we have two young players, but they are still a little bit behind. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I like to be the leader so far, <laughs> and uh, you know I'm just trying to pull the others towards me, and that they can uh, they can find me in the in the top 30 as well. But it's it's just nice. It's an honor for me, but not a, not a special pressure or right. something. Yeah, yeah. you you were saying that uh, you know now you play with the fire. You let it out on the court. Mm -hmm. We obviously see that. You're <laughs> kind of I don't know if you know, but you're a very popular player. Among, oh really? Yes, among WTA fans, yeah. just because dedicated fans. Among yeah. dedicated yeah. fans, because they enjoy the almost the show <laughs> that, that you. I'm very I'm very uh, I show a lot of my emotions you do. on the yeah. court. You do, but it's good. It's good emotions. Sometimes bad. Even though I'm trying to work on my like bad emotions and yeah. trying not to show it anymore yeah. but yeah I'm like very demonstrative you know yeah. I like to show uh, everything I I'm, I support myself a lot I and I think people either they like it or they hate it but I think right. I think people like to see emotion on the court it's like a, when you go to a tennis match you go like to the theater you know mm -hmm. and you want to see stuff going on on the court and I think I give them that so <laughs> I think you do too yeah I definitely are, think you so do are, are you aware of how entertaining you are no I, actually not at all I don't know if I'm popular or not I mean in France I'm quite popular but nothing special you know everybody is a bit stuck on the uh, yeah. the retreat of Marin Bartoli so mm -hmm. I'm just trying to to go my way and I'm I'm not asking myself if I'm popular or not but I'm really happy to hear that I am yeah. no, no I mean, it's, just, it's, it's just like a match that hits you and it, it's automatically you'll see something that will make you smile or <laughs> laugh or something at some point just because it is honest yeah. emotion that you're not yeah, afraid to share. Yeah, it's very honest. I mean, yeah. I'm not hiding anything to, to the to the crowd and I'm like this in in my life as well with the journalists, with everyone. I think we are all in the same, you know, in the same world and you, we just have to be honest with each other and that's what I do on the court with the, the, the crowd as well. I'm just trying to be myself. Yeah. And sometimes I know it's uh, there's some bad sides like everyone, but there's some good ones as well, and that's the one that I try to show the most. Yeah, I mean tennis is a is a very interesting sport, and so, like we cover it, and I think that one of the big reasons yeah, we love it it's such is a because good sport. Um, it's you cannot hide yourself when you're on the court. That no matter what you can what, try, but <laughs> you can try. Yeah, I mean maybe there are some players who are very yeah. good at it, but yeah. I think that for the most part, it when you play tennis, mm. the, the top players. It's an expression yeah. you know, of who you are as a person, and, and, and you're exactly. honest, and and things like that. So I feel like we do get to see that with you because I, you know, in speaking with you, you're no, really know exactly what I would think that you are <laughs> like. Oh, really? You know, yeah, I watch you know, open, easy, you know, like well, easy to laugh, you know, yeah. uh, things like that. And other players are kind of the same. I mean, mm -hmm. do you think that there are, for the most part, people, uh, your fellow tennis players, that they are kind of the same, that they're honest on the court, or do you think that for the most part, when you watch other people, you're like Oh man, they really. I don't know. I think I think the the goal sometimes is to make kind of a poker face, you know, not yeah. to show your emotion to the other. Uh, that's that's the goal on the court. You don't want the other to use this kind of weakness you can have uh, to to beat you. So yeah. I think a lot of players are hiding everything, and I think they're very strong at it because I'm I'm not able to do it so far. <laughs> Maybe I will one day, but 
No, I, that's why you know I, I I don't I didn't have the the chance to talk to a lot of top ten players. I'm, I'm in the female one. Yeah. So I don't know how they are in the real life. Actually, I just yeah. see them on the court, and uh, I'm wondering how they are in the, in the real life. And uh, yeah, you have to tell me because actually <laughs> I, I have I have no clue. We don't talk to each other so you, much in the locker room. So who do, you, who do you want to know about? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. We'll like the best ones. Like uh, uh, no, I know I got you. I know I got. I know Yelena Jankovic. I know a few of them. But for example, I've never talked to Serena or Maria. Maria, yeah, she's yeah. the one. That I've never talked she's to. She's the mystery. Yeah. She's the mystery one. Yeah. She's the, the the tsarin, you know, the princess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like no, no, no. And does it really feel that way sometimes? Like if, if the locker room is full, let's say at a slam, you know, and uh -huh. she kind of walks in, is yes. there? Yeah, you can a, feel you it. You can feel the presence. Yeah. That's so interesting. She, yeah, yeah. You can feel like when she's passing, it's like, you know, oh, it's Maria. <laughs> I don't know. She 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 used that as well. You know, yeah. she knows that she's uh, that she's impressive, and uh, and I think she used this and. I heard that she didn't want to. She didn't want to have friends on the tour because she doesn't want to play against uh, her friends. Yeah. So I think that that's a good reason. I mean, she has to do the best for them, for her. But definitely, uh, we we don't have the chance to get to know her, so <laughs> yeah. it's a shame. But you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, our I mean, job. It's, it's as tough well, sometimes so. too because it's. Um, I mean, I, I mean, is she? I mean, I feel like at least when I interact with Maria, I feel like she is just being a professional. Exactly. That's no, it. No, she's, she's not, not bad. Rude. She's, she's not. not rude. She doesn't do anything. No, she she's just anything. cold, she's just, like a yeah. like a Russian. Yeah. Russian people. <laughs> she's just cold, and but that's it. No, no, she's not bad. She's not rude at all. I mean, yeah. she just do her thing. She does her thing, and she let the other do their their stuff, and, yeah. and that's it. But I like, as you said, I'm very open. I like interaction with other people, other players. Yeah. I like when in the locker room we get to laugh together and have good times. That would be my dream, like you know, yeah, life on tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the stories of Billie Jean King back in the day when the WTA was just starting, mm. it was like that. You yeah, know, they go exactly. and they play, social, and then they buy yeah. a six-pack and they give exactly. beer, and like, okay, we go drink that, beer that together. That would be that yeah. would be fantastic for me. <laughs> and I, I I know that it's kind of the same thing for the for the guys. I mean, yeah. in the locker room, they have a lot of fun and everything. Okay, it's not like that, but it's still a, a good life, and I still get along with with all the tennis players. So, yeah. so. who makes you laugh the most? Who are you most inclined to be laughing with in the locker room? Man or woman? Oh, man. I, I'm not in the in, I'm not in the <laughs> men's locker, locker room. room. I mean, in, <laughs> not okay. yet. Not yet. <laughs> Give me time. Give me time. I'll get in. Maybe the, I can sneak in one in day. The <laughs> in, in the lounge, then. Or something. Um, Nothing. Yeah. I don't know. I, we are we are good friends with French people. Yeah, French sure. player. Gilles Simon makes me laugh a lot. Okay. Uh, but all the French players are so nice. And for girls, it's the same. We we get along very well between French players. Um, then I don't know. I have a very good friend, Vanya King from yeah, USA. Sure. Yeah, she's she's great. She's a great person, and uh, and we have fun when we're together. Yeah, it's nice. You had a big win over one of those top ten players you mentioned before, Serena. Mm -hmm. What was what does that mean to you as a player to beat Serena? Because she doesn't lose a whole lot. No, she doesn't. <laughs> and she had like four loses last year, I think. Yeah, and, only uh, four. Yeah, I, I I I needed some time to realize it that I beat Serena. Come on, I beat Serena. One day I was like, four days after I was in my shower at home, I was like, oh my god, I beat Serena. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I, you know, I realized it yeah. like long time ago because yeah. after the semifinal, I had to stay focused on my final against the second sister, yeah. Venus, and so I, I I tried not to you know to get stuck on this victory. Sure. Uh, but then I realized how big it was, and um, you know I. It was. It's been I don't know maybe four or five years that I haven't beat a top ten player, 
and I beat the best one. Yeah. So it's like everything in the same time. And yeah. uh, and it was a great feeling, great feeling. And it's uh, as I said, I, I worked so hard, and finally it pays off, and um, just feeling great. I, I would have loved to win the title though, but. Venus was just a stronger. Yeah. What, are the re- what are the reactions like from other players when you beat Serena? I'm assuming you get like a lot of congratulations. It's like my statues changed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm the one that beat Serena. I don't know. You know, it's yeah. It, it's so funny because it's everything in mental thing in, in tennis. Like yeah. sometimes you can be confident, but still the players don't see you as a very good player, mm. and you just need a big result, and then you are someone for the other players. It's yeah. it's really weird, and I think this victory gave me this kind of you know, I don't know, kind of things in the eyes of the other player and now they know that I can beat the best player so I can beat them potentially and uh, it's good, you know, I, I had so tough moments in the past so now I'm happy I, I just enjoy myself, I have big big wins and uh, that's all I want, that's what I'm working for. I mean, do you, uh, one of the signature shots from that match, <laughs> that lob? The lob, yeah. I mean, yeah. is that eyes closed, <laughs> you, <laughs> eyes closed running back? Yeah. I mean, that was an incredible shot, I mean, what yeah. do you remember of it? Yeah, I, of course I remember. I mean, I, I just, I, I didn't know I could have the, the ball. Finally, I'm on the ball. I'm like, what I'm gonna do? I take my racket with my two hands like a pan, and I'm like, boom. It was a little bit of luck, I have to say. It's not only talent. Yeah. <laughs> but I did some great shots through yeah. the whole week, and um, and it it was fun because I think Serena didn't expect that, yeah. and uh, I don't know if I've been elected to shot of the month. But I, know, I think we'll see. It's yeah, it, it's one. on the WT right right now. But she gave uh, you the racket clap. I think that that. Oh racket, really? Yeah. I didn't see it, that. Yeah, she went like this. Yeah, so. she's nice because she was lucky. But, <laughs> <laughs> but she's nice. Yeah, it was a good point. You have, I think, speaking of the men's story, you have a member of your family mm-hmm. is named after one of the men's players. Yeah, my family. Come family. on. <laughs> You're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my dog, my dog is, um, I called my dog Andy when yeah. I was 15 um, because I was fond of Andy Roddick. Yeah. But like really, it was uh, my childhood hero, I yeah. can say. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's funny because my, now it could be Andy Murray, but I sure. really want to keep it as Andy Roddick <laughs> because sure. it was the one I was uh, I was fond of. And, uh, and he's another nice. player that showed, showed emotion. Exactly. Everything but on that's the court. why I'm like that, I think. I, I took him so much as an example. I loved so much uh, when he was doing the showman on court, like he was, uh, I don't know, the, I, I remember some matches uh, of him when the crowd was just getting crazy, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to do the same as a tennis player, and uh, I was doing it on the, you know, the young tournament, the under 14, under 12, I was trying to do the same, <laughs> people were like, whoa, this girl is weird, but it was just my dream to do it as an erotic, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and now I have the chance to do it on the real tour, and uh, it's amazing, I will never forget that, because it gives me some power at, at, at some some moment and it's it's good. Well, power, power on yeah. your serve. Huh? Power on your serve. No, <laughs> power on my you know my my strength to fight yeah. and yeah. Uh, and all that. Uh, no, I wish I could serve like him, but no, far away, <laughs> far away. Good. Uh, we always let our guests pick a a song like an mm-hmm. outro song to play them out. What is like the mm. Alize Cornet theme song? The thing is that I'm I'm a big fan of Muse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would I would choose a I think I would choose a song from Muse. I don't know which one because okay. I like all of them. But there is a song I really like at the moment. It's not Muse. Okay. <laughs> it's something else. It's a uh, Clean Bandit. Uh, okay. Rather be. This okay. one drives me crazy. I love it. It's like <laughs> such a good mood song. And uh, yeah, I would I would definitely uh, make it play on my court if I have to get in. Perfect. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alize. Yeah. Good luck for the rest of the tournament. See you. See you.